Welcome to In Your Head with Lee Richardson. And I have a question for you. Have you ever had a friend or a family hit their head, have a brain injury, and you just don't know what to say to them? You're afraid you're going to say the wrong thing? Well, I have got the most fabulous guest today that will help you understand how you talk and how you support people that have had brain injuries. Valerie Gotcher. And Valerie is such an interesting story, and her story is so good. I'm going to ask her to tell it. Thank you, Lee, for having me. Um, And I appreciate your positive uh, message so far about me. Um, You may want to be careful, though, with lifting me up so much when I haven't even started yet. So (laughs) save your compliments for the end. Um, I am a speech-language pathologist, and I have been for many, many, many years now. Um, I'll take a little step back into my professional history because one thing a lot of people don't know about me is that I also worked for Child Protective Services in Dallas County for a few years before I got my master's in speech pathology. Um, So I, I have an undergrad degree in child development and psychology, and I always thought that I would work with children. That was my path. Um, I was comfortable with that. I thought about teaching. Um, and then I wound up in somewhat of a social worker role and worked a lot with not necessarily direct services for the kids on my caseload at CPS, but with their families. And uh, that was a really interesting journey and part of my life that sometimes I tend to forget about. But it really, truly led me to speech pathology because I was sending many of the kids on my caseload to a variety of therapeutic services. Um, A lot of the children I worked with had experienced neglect, more so than uh, physical abuse or sexual abuse. Um, but it was a really, really interesting time in my life to to get to know community resources and to learn more about therapy disciplines. So um, in grad school, again, I was on that track of working with children. I was assigned about halfway through to the stroke group at our clinic at UNT. And I, are you a UNT graduate also? I am. I've spent my time there. I spent a lot of time there, too. <laughs> this is where I got my undergrad as well, so go mean green. Um, I I got assigned to the stroke group, and, and I truly fell in love with working with adults. Um, I, I never turned back. After I started working with my stroke clients at the clinic, I also worked with a couple of younger traumatic brain injury survivors at the clinic, and I just, I just really loved it. Um, I was not having to spend our sessions sitting in the floor, uh, playing with toys, managing lots and lots and lots of behaviors. I was maybe managing some behaviors that tend to come with a traumatic brain injury. Um, but it was refreshing and it was, it was wonderful. And, um, I worked for about Somewhere between 10 and 12 years, I took a couple of breaks and worked part-time here and there when I had kids, Uh, but I worked in hospitals uh, primarily as a speech pathologist. So I focused a lot of my, my, uh, my work on neurological rehab. 
Um, so I worked with adults pretty much exclusively in these hospital systems who had experienced a stroke, a traumatic brain injury, or maybe brain cancer. I worked a little bit with people who had experienced um, something that disrupted their, their voice and their their vocalizations or swallowing disorders as well. But I spent a lot of time um, helping people with speech, language, and cognitive deficits that come with brain injury. So um, I was very ambitious at that time. I, I was younger. I... I loved the, the ideal of, you know, kind of saving the world. Um, I was in my early 20s, of course, and, you know, we're, we all come out of grad school and we're like, oh, yes, I'm here to help and help and help and help. And um, because of that ambition, I, I took over the, the support group at the hospital that I worked at. And um, ultimately, at another hospital, I took over that support group when I made a transition there, too. And what I was hearing from our support group attendees, so many of these folks had graduated, if you say, if you, you know, kind of lend yourself to that term, we would call it a graduation, when our patients would leave the rehab uh, portion of their recovery, uh, they would graduate, and, you know, we'd say, hey, um, you know, you're ready, you're ready for the world now, go back and live your life again. And then these folks would come back to our monthly support group and they would tell me um, how much they enjoyed the group. And it was just the highlight of their entire month. And because I was young and ambitious and, and maybe not really seeing the larger picture quite as well as I do now, um, I just took that as a really high compliment and patted myself on the back a lot and said, oh, I'm doing so great with this support group. Everyone's getting what they need. Um, but I, I kind of started listening a little bit to what they weren't telling me at that time also. Um, because all of our folks who had graduated, I, you know, started asking questions. Well, what else are you doing other than coming to this group? And I, I got some, I got a lot of answers that I really didn't like. Um, I didn't hear my patients who I really felt could go back to work. I didn't hear that they were doing that. I didn't hear that they were finding volunteer opportunities out in the community. I didn't hear that they were keeping up with their exercises. Um, and then I started seeing that we'd have patients come back to our program for what we would call a tune-up. Um, or maybe a stroke survivor had had an incident like a fall, or maybe they had had a TIA, which most people refer to as a mini-stroke, and they would come back to our program for these tune-ups. And I felt like we kind of kept restarting this whole rehab process again with, with some people, and, and then I started realizing how depressed a lot of our folks were, and that that one day on the calendar every month was absolutely not enough to fulfill their lives. Um, that was a lot of stress for them to handle, and it was also a lot of stress for their their families and their caregivers that you had mentioned in the beginning, you know, kind of helping people who help to take care of individuals who've had a stroke or a brain injury. You know, how do they help them through? Um, so that's kind of where my, my journey with the organization I now run 
begins. But I'm going to I'm going to take a little breath and see if you've got a question for me so far. Well, your listening to you brings up a memory, and it's a memory I have. My mom passed about 15 years ago, and the very first time I knew that she was in trouble, I went over on a Saturday morning, and she knew I was coming, and I'm beating on the, you know, Mom, Mom, I'm here, and she's not answering, and of course I have a key. So I said, well, I know she's awake, But I let myself in, and I find her on the floor, almost struggling, trying to crawl to the front door. And she had had a mini stroke. Mm. And it was the most, that memory still puts cold chills up and down my spine. It just broke my heart because she looked so destroyed. And so we got her up, and we we got through it. That was the beginning of the end, so to speak. And during that time, I struggled. I didn't know. I could see she was having cognitive issues. I could see she was confused sometimes. I could see, you know, that vacant stare, that deer in the headlights. I would see some of that. Um, I could see, you know, sometimes she'd stand up real fast, and I could tell she's kind of lost her vision, her balance. Um, And she'd a lot of times would say my vision's blurred. So I could see all these things, and I really did not know how to help her. I mean, I certainly wanted to love her through it, but it takes a little bit more than love. So, you know, listening to you talk about what you saw in a support center, just it it brought mom up in my mind. And, you know, I see brain injury in my business, a little different. I see a lot of sports concussions, and I see a lot more people that have just fell. And I've been in ICU twice with brain injury as a result of falls. So I certainly understand and recognize the, that there are those types of brain injuries out there. But I'm just amazed at how broad it is because when you think about it, it's not just strokes, car wrecks, falls, sports conduct concussions. There's things like go unreported, like domestic violence, child abuse. And when you talked about being part of CPA, that raised a question in my head. You know, how much how much brain injury did you see there? Sure. I'm I'm sure that we saw it, but maybe didn't have the skill at that point to recognize what brain injury was, whether that be with the children that we worked with or with the adults who were in the home. Um, you know, most often it would have been the mother who was also a victim of domestic abuse in those situations. And at that point in my career, I certainly didn't have the knowledge to recognize what traumatic brain injury might look like. Um, but I certainly learned it as a speech pathologist. Um, let me just say first that I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about your mother. It's, that's not a story that's uncommon. And, and you know that, of course, just as well as I do. And, you know, one thing that happens in that hospital setting for people with, with loved ones who have had a stroke or a traumatic brain injury or an infection or any of those other types of insult on your neurological function, um, the treatment is directed to the patient. 
So that means that the caregiver is kind of out there navigating all of this on their own. And that is very, very difficult. Um, they tend to kind of be working on on overdrive sometimes. They tend to just kind of be working in, within the moment or within the day, and they're just trying to get through one day at a time. And it's very difficult for the families that have their these patients, their loved ones in the hospital, or even in the outpatient setting, which is where I primarily worked, it's really hard for them to take a step back sometimes and think about, okay, I know today is is going to be rough, or maybe today we're in this pattern now of get up, get ready, go to therapy, come home, have dinner, uh, rinse, wash, and repeat, do the same thing the next day. But it's really hard for them to look six months ahead or 12 months ahead. And because as a practitioner, as a speech pathologist, and, and my entire team that I worked with, we're focusing our efforts on the patient. So the caregivers just kind of have to figure it out on their own. Well, and speaking as I was in that spot, and it was very frustrating. It was overwhelming on some days, and you just you you have to support the process. And but if you don't understand the process, it's hard to do. And I think that kind of leads in maybe to why you formed Bind. Sure, sure. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, why did I do this? And sometimes my first thought is, well, I, I formed a nonprofit organization for the same reason why everyone else who starts a nonprofit organization starts one. And usually it's because we're mad. You know, we're, we, we see, we have this realization at some point that there's something really broken within our communities and we see a way to fix it. And, and that's really how I felt, um, you know, time and time again, after hearing our patients and hearing our graduated patients talk about how their, their day-to-day lives lacked purpose, how the financial strain of not being able to go back to work was ruining their families, um, the, the stress and social isolation that came with an acquired brain injury. You know, I just kept hearing and hearing and hearing this, and and I, I thought there's got to be something out there. there there's got to be a way that we can bridge the medical process of recovery to contributing community living again. How can we bridge the gap and make these people more successful in the community, make them feel that, make everyone else see that they have something important to give, and, and then, of course, serve as an agent to prevent them from slipping backwards and prevent them from needing those tune-ups and getting back in therapy again. Well, you know, you mentioned early on that one of the things that the reoccurring symptom was depression. And that's, in my practice, I, I've seen that brain injury links to your mental health so strongly. And I have a funny story. A gentleman, he was in a car accident. And he was in the hospital for a year. He was the only person in the car that survived. He goes hospital for a year, outpatient for a year, and he ends up 
on my door. And he was referred by another practitioner. And because of that referral, I didn't necessarily do every, I didn't look at everything that I normally would have because they said, this is what his problem is, is this is where he needs help. So I said, okay. So he comes in after the fourth session and he says, I want you to see my dad. And I said, well, okay, I didn't know your dad was in the car accident. And he said, oh, he's not. He said, but he's so depressed. Mm. And and I said, well, okay. I said, the, the practitioner that referred you to me never mentioned depression. And I, said, you know, and I said, that's my bad. If I would have done my normal assessment, I would have known that. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter. I'm not depressed anymore. But it's always there. And I think that we focus on, as as practitioners, we focus on other things. One of the things that I always focus on, and I think the truth is in the history. So, okay, you came in, you were in a motor motor vehicle accident. Have you ever fell from three or more feet off the ground? Have you ever fell down five or more stairs? Have you ever fallen off a bicycle without a, a helmet? Because, you know, it's not just that one incident. It's what's what's led up to that. And after my first brain injury in, in ICU, um, my brain was still so vulnerable that when I that when I fell again, it had a much more significant impact on me. So the tie to that mental health, you know, when you said that about depression, I said just the bells went off in my head. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, the the second impact or the second occurrence of a brain injury or concussion is something that's still a little bit mysterious. But with all of the attention and focus that's gone into sports-related concussions, we're learning a lot more about that. Um, what I think is really interesting about the incidence of depression in brain injury survivors is that over time, those numbers rise, and it's dramatic. Um, we're talking about maybe five years from the time of their injury or three years from the time of their injury. And it, it's really kind of puzzling because from the outside perspective, we're talking about looking at a person who maybe they were confined to a wheelchair or could not speak or could not swallow initially after this injury, or maybe they were in a coma. So, you know, even taking a step further back from the outside perspective, this might be a person that has gone from relearning all of those things over again to someone who's now walking, talking, swallowing normally, maybe even driving, you know, able to read and write and all of those things again. So for most people who look at a person from those eyes, you don't see depression and you don't see anxiety. You see all the progress that they've made. And it's not that they don't see that progress as well. But over time, they're more likely to become depressed, even though their brains and bodies have healed so dramatically. Well, I, I think that's fascinating. 
I think that what to me is so fascinating is is that that injury is a trauma, and trauma lives in the subconscious part of the brain. On a conscious level, we can say, you know what, it doesn't matter anymore. I'm over it. I'm I'm well. I can drive again. I can do this. I can do this. So I, I just can't think about that right now, and we'll just try to push it away. Sure. But what, but what lives in your subconscious, you you remember that through your senses, what you saw, what you felt, what you heard, what you smelled, what you tasted. All those memories are in the body. They're in that autonomic nervous system. And that's what throws that, that puts you in that fight or flight mode. You either get hyper aroused and you get anxious you know you're you're thinking something's going to happen i'm not going to have a good day and that get into that hyper aroused state or you get hypo aroused and you just kind of go numb and i'm just too tired you know mm-hmm. i can't think about doing that today so i think that that what happens at that subconscious level even the person even the the person that's had the injury, the injury, is really not understanding. They're not processing it on on the level that maybe they need to. And of course, I think that's my counselor coming out uh, to in me. But because I do think you have to process trauma, whether it's emotional or physical, you do have to process it. But other people, you know, you say, "So how are you doing, Lee? Fine." Okay, well, great. You know, you were able, I understood you, you answered. It's confusing. Sure, sure. I, you know, and the other thing, too, um, that I learned in a mental health first aid class, I, I just love the saying in talking about trauma is that trauma is in the eye of the beholder. So it's not up to any one of us to, to judge the level or the degree to which an an action or an event could really affect someone, it, that is all internalized within the individual. And I, I just kind of had, I've held on to that, of that phrase, trauma is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and, you know, you mentioned lack of processing, too, especially early on. Um, and what we what we would see, too, in the rehabilitation process is that, we, we had the opportunity to work with people when they were making a lot of gains um, pretty quickly, actually. Um, and not just a lot of gains quickly, but big monumental things like going from a wheelchair to a walker then to a cane and being able to walk unassisted. Those are really big monumental gains for someone who's survived a stroke or a brain injury. Being able to eat and drink a regular diet again, maybe when they haven't had the muscle control to be able to do that, and they've had pureed food or thickened liquids, that's something that speech pathologists tend to address, of course, in the hospital is diet. You know, that's a huge gain to be able to eat and drink what you want to again or go to the bathroom without someone standing there or holding your hand or helping you because you can't physically navigate yet. You know, those things happen in the first several months after a brain injury for most people. And, of course, I'm talking about pretty significant injuries and not necessarily just your standard single incident sports concussion. 
you know, talking about what I saw in the hospital setting. Um, but then, you know, those gains don't tend to be as big um, as the timeline and their they recovery along their recovery. And I, I think that sometimes that that can feel very disappointing, like, oh, you know, I don't have something big to celebrate now, you know, or my my foot still feels this way or my hand still doesn't work yet. And, you know, when is that ever going to happen? And, and maybe they tend to get really focused on the things that still don't work um, in their bodies or in their minds. But then, of course, the other thing that, that bind really, really addresses at its core is social isolation. So, you know, I, I, I just feel that some of what we see and hear about from the depression and anxiety front from people who've had a brain injury is that they become very isolated once they finish the rehabilitation process. And that's a big part of what we need to to do to help them pull them back out of their homes and, and out of those four walls that they've kind of lost their sense of purpose and don't have a cheering crowd around them anymore. Well, I know that your organization has been shut down as many organizations have recently, but on a, on a typical day when Bind Brain Injury Network of Dallas was up and running. What did that look like for somebody? I mean, it certainly, I'm sure it looked different than going into a hospital setting. It's very different. And um, a lot of people really do expect that that a program like BIND, which is based on what's called the clubhouse model, um, they expect to come into a clinical setting, but it is not like that at all. Um, BIND operates like a typical office except what you're going to see in a brain injury clubhouse like ours is that the office is being run by people who have disabilities. Well, that's, you know, that's very different because usually it's the people that are, that are therapists or, or rehab people that are there. And so it sounds like that approach is really getting people involved that understand you know, I understand because I've been where you've been, and I've I've had those struggles. So it sounds like that with what you're doing with Bind, it's more interactive, and a lot it gets people integrated and involved. And I think that you know it's it'll be interesting to to learn more about where Bind is today. Right now, I know you're doing every, everything virtual online. Everything. <laughs> and I know uh, that's got to be difficult. But, you know, how long, and I'm sure you can't answer these questions, but when we come back, we're, we'd I'd like to learn a little bit more about where you see Bind going tomorrow and what are the biggest areas of influence that you can continue to add support to? Um, and one of the most impressive things that I've seen are the masks that people have created there. And I almost wish that I, we could have a visual and that we could flash one up because they are so incredibly, each one is so different. So, and that I'll never lose that vision in my mind. And hopefully, if people go to your website, they'll be able to see it.
If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Marla believes that with the right mindset, anything is possible. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka inspires you and her clients to explore, discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the million-dollar mindset. Marla will inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power. Tune into the million-dollar mindset for heartwarming stories with Marla Tabaka. Learn tips and tricks to building a successful business and unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. For more information on the Million Dollar Mindset, go to our website, MarlaTabaka.com. That's M-A-R-L-A-T-A-B-A-K-A.com. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. This is the Toginet Radio Network. Radio with a cutting edge. the United States Postal Service successfully ships over 160 billion packages and letters with bills traveling through the mail at twice the speed of checks. Automated sorting machines read zip codes and directs the mail to the proper destination. But last year, they failed to read some 2.4 billion pieces of mail, all because of cacography. That's bad handwriting. So what happens to all that errant mail? The post office hires more than 700 postal clerks to decipher the most difficult ones. When a sorting machine discovers an illegible address, it scans and sends a digital image to the clerk's computers. Amazingly, the average clerk can crack the code in just three seconds. Not everyone can keep up, though, as management at the post office is always pushing the envelope. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. So In Your Head with Lee Richardson, and with me is Valerie Gotcher, and we've been talking about brain injury and how it impacts not just a person that suffered from the brain injury, but the whole family and friends, all the caregivers. And Valerie has created BIND, Brain Injury Network of Dallas, to add support to everybody that's impacted. And right now, BIND is in a virtual mode, and but continues to be very, very active. So do you go online every day, Valerie? Pretty much, yes, we do. We've, uh, we made the transition to virtual programming really quickly. Uh, we had tightened up a lot of our communications, made sure we had the right contact information for all of our members. Uh, we serve a, about 70 people right now in the program um, it, at minimum, and those are people who we see or hear from at least once a week. Um, we have about 20 to 25 prospective members um, in addition to that. And then on top of that layer, um, we get at least a phone call or email almost every single day from someone in the community or somewhere in Texas looking for resources or more information about us. So so what does your normal uh, client look like? Is there a normal 
There's no normal. There, there's not. There's a lot of diversity within our membership pool. Um, our average age is about 50, and uh, we, we tend to be predominantly male, uh, which is kind of matches along with the, the rates of traumatic brain injury. TBIs tend to happen more often in men, um, and that's just kind of a broad statistic. Um, we have about a most of our members, I believe right now, are stroke survivors, but usually it's about an even third between stroke survivor, traumatic brain injury survivor, and then a group that I call others. So the others are brain tumor, brain cancer, infection, um, anoxia, which is lack of oxygen to the brain. So we've got kind of this other lesser known group of folks too. And even though they are all very different people, the very different walks of life. Uh, we have folks who are attorneys, who were corporate trainers, who were teachers, who were nurses, who uh, were high degree earners. Uh, we have a gentleman who was a colonel in the army. Uh, we have a few other veterans as well. Um, so, you know, just a huge melting pot of people. Um, and they all recognize how different they are. But what is really special about the Bind community is that they all see how they relate to each other so quickly and so easily because they were all adults who had been living their lives without a thought in the world about ever having a brain injury. And then all of a sudden, whenever that incident happened, everything changed for them, everything. And that is what our community shares amongst the membership is that they've all had to figure out how to come back from that day when everything in their lives suddenly and completely altered because of this injury. Is that what the mask is about? Is that their expression? Is that kind of part of their story? Absolutely. The mask project is one, it's beautiful. It's captivating to look at. They are colorful, but every mask is a very personal representation of that person's experience with brain injury. And then what is attached to every mask, because they're amazing just standing alone, but then what you've got with every mask is that person's story in their own words. And um, they are so moving and so profound. And I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned them because a lot of our folks, even as they were doing and creating these masks, they, they really kind of work through some things that maybe they hadn't really fully processed at that point. Um, and maybe some of them, it was a very positive experience to reflect back on this is how far I've come. And this is how I felt when I first woke up in the hospital and didn't know what was happening. You know, this is how confused I was, or this is how isolated I felt. Um, this is how broken I was. And maybe this is what they made their mask look like. But then some of them made their mask very, very positive. 
and uplifting and focused on all the good. Um, so they are all very uniquely different. Um, but it is a really profound thing to see all of these things together. Um, so that is called the Unmasking Brain Injury Project that we've been participating in for probably about a year and a half to two years now. But it's actually a global advocacy effort to bring attention, awareness, and education to uh, the sheer number of people across the globe who experience an acquired brain injury every year and every day. Um, but also to recognize each one of these people as an individual, as a human who has feelings and, and experiences that we could all really learn something from. Um, and you mentioned where, where you could see the mask. Um, all of our member masks are uploaded into this main website um, called unmaskingbraininjury.org. And you can see and learn about people who have put a mask in their story up all over the world. Um, there are many countries that are represented now in many, many states in the U.S. where people have uploaded images of their mask, and they are absolutely worth checking out. Oh, please, I encourage anybody and everybody to do that because it was one of the most breathtaking things I've ever seen at the uh, fundraising event. I walked in and there were all these masks and these stories. And, you know, some I could see happiness in and some I could see sad. And it, it truly is a story. It's the most creative art that I think is there for brain Absolutely. Injury. And we're going to do all of that again. Uh, we, we are set this year for our Beyond the Mask Gala is set for November 20th, later this year. So we definitely, uh, we feel like the theme is worth exploring uh, again and again because they do make such a, an impact on people when they see these and, and learn about not just that story and the, the artistic, beautiful representation of their journey, but but there's a person that is attached to that project, and um, the gala gives us an opportunity to bring our, our donors and our supporters together alongside with the members and really celebrate life. So that, to me, I was so impressed with because it touch it touches on the emotional aspect of it and there's emotional there's logic there's cognitive and then i'm sure a big part of it that you guys touch on is the physical sure we do our members um you know like i described we do have a typical office building but we've got a really large room in our program that is multifunction. So there are times that that room is full of members doing yoga or meditation or strength exercises or balance exercises or strength training. Um, and that is offered to our members five days a week that our program is open. We also are really blessed to be located in a, an office park in Plano that doesn't have a through street. So our members three times a week have a walking group and they walk together um, and they every lap is about a, a third of a mile, if I remember right, around the office complex. 
And um, we usually have an event in the spring, of course, with COVID-19. We've had to rework that a little bit, but it's called Synapse Labs. And uh, we're going to move that event virtually this year in the first couple of weekends of June. So definitely keep an eye out for more about that. It's a very fun, fun way to stay active. Um, but what we find that uh, in keeping our, their bodies physically active is that we have very, very few incidences of falls and rehospitalizations uh, for our member population. And I feel like that's a, a really significant part of our program, even though that's not the primary reason we're there. We're, we're not just a gym. Uh, we do offer that every day for our members. Um, but it's also, of course, great to exercise, to combat depression or anxiety, um, and kind of release a lot of that energy that the body tends to try to hold on to and turn into more stress. Um, but it, it's a great way to keep people active and keep them from being at higher risk of having another injury. So um, you had mentioned falls, of course, too. Um, many, many people don't know that a fall is the most common cause of traumatic brain injury in this country. You know, I saw an interesting statistic that intentional self-harm was the first leading cause of TBI-related deaths in 2014. And that, that just grabbed me because I don't think that we fully understand the full range of TBI. That's very, very true. Very true. Um, there was a time a couple of winters ago that... Uh, we had a lot of really bad ice here in the Metroplex, and I had two or three patients, I, I know I had at least two, um, who had both fallen and hit their heads, sustained a, a pretty profound traumatic brain injury hitting concrete because they had gone outside to check their mail after the ice storm had hit. And, and I thought, you know what, it's just not worth it to check your mail, but, you know, and I think we're all experiencing a little cabin fever lately as well, but, you know, the, the pool just to do something that you normally do every single day, even though there's ice everywhere, these gentlemen still wanted to get out there and check the mail. They knew it was there and, and took the risk and both fell and wound up in the hospital with a traumatic brain injury. And that's, you know, it's impacted probably every aspect of their life. I mean, when you think about a lot of the brain injury people that I've worked with, they, they've like, I've never had these ruminating thoughts. And now I do. And these thoughts, they just keep looping, you know, around my head. Or I used to sleep really well. And now I have crazy dreams. I have nightmares. I have flashbacks. Sometimes I'll hear these voices or, or, or noise in my head. And wow, when you think about, was that worth it? And it, it can affect you. I've had people say, you know, I get up, I stand up and I'm just spinning. Or I'm so dizzy. Or I just, I'm tingling all over. And it's amazing to me what brain injury can do. That is that is so true. Um, and I think that 
that stems from the fact that most people don't understand that the brain is responsible for everything that we do and every feeling that we have, whether it's emotional or whether it's how hot is the water that's coming out of the faucet so I don't burn my skin feeling, you know, those sensory um, issues, these are all functions of the brain. Uh, your vision, your perception, your your perception not only of how far away is something that I'm trying to reach, but your perception of other people's emotions. Those are all functions of the brain that uh, we don't necessarily completely fully understand. And the more people that do have at least some broad understanding of that are more likely to be cautious um, and wear a helmet, for example, when they're riding a bicycle um, or maybe even wear a helmet when they're snow skiing. You know, um, they're, my, kid, my kids have, of course, grown up with me telling them and preaching to them and being very cautious and and probably more of a mother hen than most moms are because this is the field I work in. Uh, but my kids have the, the most elaborate, largest helmets of any kid in my neighborhood, which, you know, sometimes just kind of cracks me up because they look like they're wearing dirt bike helmets and they're just on a little scooter going around the neighborhood. Well, that does, that does my heart good <laughs> that to hear you say because you understand how important the brain is. And when you have a trauma, those frontal lobes, they just completely shut down. You You've got the left side of the brain. That's where your logic, that's where you make sense of things. And that's what helps us move forward in normal life, helps us get through all the trauma. And the left side works best when we're not in that fight or flight mode. Sure. Uh, and what you've seen and worked a lot with is how trauma inhibits language and logic. The left side of the brain is, is what's biased for the positive, and that's really your prefrontal lobes. And then you got the right side of your brain, and we all tease about that. Oh, that's emotion. That's love. Well, that's also your traumatic memories and survival response. That's the side of your brain that's responsible for assessing the danger. Two-thirds of the cells on the right side of your brain, they're scanning for threat. So the right side is, you know, it's biased for the negative and it increases that activity in your limbic system and your amygdala. And that's the problem because the left side can't plan, can't problem solve, can't understand. And the right side can't calm the brain down. That amygdala, that emotional center is driving the thoughts, the feelings and how we respond to things. And to me, that it's the key for and a lot of the work I do with neurofeedback and neurostimulation is geared at creating regulation in the brain, giving the left side the ability to plan and problem solve, giving the right side the ability to control those emotions and calm that brain down. Because I have yet to meet somebody that has not had a, a significant emotional impact after their brain injury, even if you touched on this earlier, even after they get better, they can mm -hmm. walk, they can talk, but emotionally, they're, they're still, they still feel the trauma. Mm -hmm. And that's our biggest challenge for bind members really is, 
I, you know, I think I posted the other day um, on Facebook. I I interviewed a few of our members for a little, just a little bit of a Giving Tuesday, and wanted to share their perspective on why they really love Bind as an organization. And they kept touching on things like community and feeling that they belong there. Um, so the way in that I, I feel like we support people with a brain injury in our program is that I, I feel largely that they come to us um, kind of emotionally broken. Um, they just have really lost that sense of identity. Um, and some of that is because they're not at work anymore. And uh, many of us, it's just kind of part of our culture that we we link who we are and what our worth is to our career and our job. And um, when people have that loss of job and loss of career, their sense of self is really disruptive. So many BIND members come to us and they've kind of been sitting at home in that place emotionally for a really long time. And sometimes they don't even know how they're going to fit into our program for a while. And it, it just takes a while to manifest itself. So what's so unique about what we do, because we don't serve as clinicians and medical providers in the BIND setting, we serve as supporters and facilitators, and we give them work to do that's functional and that's meaningful and has purpose tied to it. We convince our members, and I I don't use that word convince lightly, but we let them see that the organization doesn't exist without their input, um, whether that be helping to make decisions about something, coming up with ideas about a project, putting something on the calendar, sending invitations, um, telling our donors thank you, answering the phones, or cleaning the toilets. Our, our members know that they are responsible for this program and for supporting each other. And restoring someone's sense of purpose really helps to bring back that sense of self. And they know that they are needed and that their contribution is valued in our program. Um, And emotionally, over time, there are just some tremendous gains we see from putting people who feel very useless sometimes or feel like they just don't know what their purpose is anymore. Uh, We give that back to them and it may look totally different from what their purpose was before their brain injury. Um, But it's just an amazing thing to witness. Well, I think, you know, what you do for the, for the members is so significant. And I think that sometimes I worry about the caretakers and the people that don't understand. And, you know, I always want to kind of help people. The people will say to me, what can I do? What can I do? And one of the first things that I will say is coach them, you know, help them, help them stay present in the moment, practice some mindfulness. And mindfulness is nothing more than staying present in the moment. You know, there's a true statistic. I got off Harvard Health. 80% of us are either lost in the past or worried about the future. So if we can help them to stay present, because if you stay present, you have the opportunity to see what you're grateful for. 
and what you're grateful for, you can be thankful for. Sure. And I'll encourage the caregiver, you know, become your brother's noticing brain. You know, encourage them to be curious. What You know, oh, it's such a nice day outside. Doesn't it feel good? Yeah, it does. Well, what do you hear? Do you hear the birds? What do you see? Do you see the squirrels running around? What do you smell? You know, encourage them to be curious and help them notice what's going on. And I think the one thing that we it's so easy to do for all of us is to be judgmental. No, you shouldn't do that. Sure. <clears throat> and, and stay away from that that being judgmental. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of coaching them is helping them understand what fundamental self-care is all about. Exactly. I I love the term elastic trust. And I feel like that's something that we teach to our caregivers, but also to our staff and our volunteers. Because many of us that work in this profession and even some of our volunteers or nurses, you know, we're used to helping and doing. And um, it's hard, I think, sometimes to get to a place where you, you feel comfortable as a caregiver in trusting your loved one to make decisions again. And I think that's, I think that's an excellent suggestion. Do you have any others? Yes. Um, I think it's important for people to understand grief and um, not just from their survivor's perspective, but from their own perspective as a caregiver. And I say all the time that grief is very fickle. Um, even though we may understand the stages of grief, we we all experience those stages at different times and on different timelines. I think um, that's a very good point. You know, that if they can process that grief, they'll feel less overwhelmed with the trauma that put it in the past. It's over. And I'm safe now. So, Valerie, we've got a couple of minutes left. If somebody wants to learn more about what you do or the program, how do they find you? Absolutely. I'd love for people to check us out on our website, which is very simple, thebind.org, T-H-E-B-I-N-D.org. People can email me directly. My email address is also very simple. It's Valerie at thebind.org. Um, and then, of course, we're very active on social media. We're very active on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And I can be found on LinkedIn as well. Well, I encourage people to check check you out because you have much and Bind has much to offer from all of us. And when you stop and think about it, everybody has a friend or a family member that's had a brain injury. And we tend to think, oh, they're over it. Uh, but maybe we don't understand how they behave. So, Valerie, thank you so much for joining me today and just helping the general public see that there are resources out there that some people think, well, I don't want to go back to the inpatient or the outpatient, but there's something out there that can help everyone. And I encourage people to, you know, encourage your friends and family to understand that, as I said it before, the trauma is over and I'm safe now. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Valerie, for being here today. Thank you, Lee. I really appreciate the invitation and the time.